Well, would you take the word of God with me uh, this evening and turn to the book of Exodus in chapter 14. Uh, Exodus chapter 14. Uh, we know that uh, the children of Israel have, I would say here, they've already been delivered, but they're not out of the woods yet. Uh, there's still something that God wants to do to bring about their deliverance. And at the same time, as we'll see in our text this evening, God is even not done with Egypt. There's still something that He wants to do, and I'll put it this way, for the Egyptians. Um, sometimes when we think about uh, the judgment of God, the chastening of the Lord, we tend to forget often what the purpose is. And that is that God wants to bring man to a place of repentance. And um, uh, God does that. And um, we saw that through the ten plagues. And pretty much with regards to, with regards to Egypt, uh, there's nothing left in Egypt except one thing. There's one thing that Egypt can still glory in, and that is the Egyptian army. And uh, God's going to deal with that. There's really two purposes here to this passage in Exodus chapter 14. One of them is to deal with Egypt, and the second one is to bring the children of Israel through a trial, a test of their faith. And it happens, it's interesting, immediately after their deliverance uh, in the scene here in the Red Sea. We're going to read here in just a moment, and we're not going to get to the actual part where they cross the Red Sea, but the crossing of the Red Sea, I think uh, if you've read through the Old Testament, really from this point onward, if you were to read through the Bible chronologically, you would find that this event of the crossing of the Red Sea stands in great prominence in the Scriptures from this moment on. Uh, it is repeatedly referenced. And one commentator even wrote, and I don't know whether I agree with this statement, but I think there is something to it. He says, This miracle of the Red Sea occupies a similar place in the Old Testament Scriptures as the resurrection of the Lord Jesus does in the New Testament. And I think there is some validity to that statement because this event would be constantly referenced back to when even they enter into the promised land, the beginning of the book of Joshua references the crossing of the Red Sea. The end of the book of Joshua references the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, you can read even through throughout the history of Israel uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of Numbers. Uh, you can go into later uh, when God raises up prophets to preach to the nation of Israel for them to turn back to God. He references the crossing of the Red Sea. Even after they fall into captivity and they come back into the land, uh, Nehemiah and Ezra, they also mention what God did in bringing deliverance through the crossing of the Red Sea. And so this event, much like the Passover, is going to be uh, constantly referenced uh, throughout the remainder of the Old Testament. We're going to begin reading in verse 1, and we're going to read down to verse 16. So let's stand, if you would, uh, for the reading of God's Word. Exodus chapter 14, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. And the Word of God says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they turn and encamp before... Pihah-Heroth, between Migdol and the sea, over against Beelzephon, before it, shall, before it shall ye encamp by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are entangled in the land. The wilderness hath shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that he shall follow after them, and I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his host that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord, and they did so. And it, and it was told the king of Egypt that the people fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people, and they said, Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? And he made ready his chariot and took his people with him, 
And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt and captains over every one of them. Now I want to pause here. I want to say only 600. You remember how many of the children? Men were 600,000. So this tells you how formidable the Egyptian army was. That all they needed against 600,000 men is 600 chariots. The Bible says in verse 8, and by the way, uh, when they come, when the children of Israel fear, you would say, why would almost 2 million people fear 600? Well, that tells you that this was a great army. Uh, Feared and renowned, not just there, uh, but also around the world. Verse 8, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with an high hand. But the Egyptians pursued after them, and all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamping by the sea beside Pihiharoth, before Baal-zephon. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord, and they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today, show to you today, For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel, that they go forward. But lift thou up thy rod, and stretch out thine hand over the sea, and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea." I'd like to bring your attention to two expressions that we find. The first one in verse 13, uh, Moses says unto the people, Fear not, and here's the words, stand still. Now I want you to think about that for just a moment. The army's coming. There's nowhere to go. There's, There's only a few options. The Red Sea is not an option. Going towards the army is not an option. They could run in the wilderness, but it's flat, and they're going to be quickly overcome by the chariot. So it's kind of pointless. They're out in the open. And he says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. But then he says, then the Lord says unto Moses in verse 15, Wherefore criest thou unto me, speak unto the children of Israel, that they go forward. And so I want to preach this evening on those two expressions. uh, Stand still and go forward. Stand still and go forward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening uh, for your word. And uh, we thank you for what this passage here uh, teaches us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn some things concerning the trial of our faith, uh, that when our faith is tested, that we might respond. Lord, in the same way that the children of Israel were instructed, may we learn, Lord, to stand still and go forward. I pray that you'd give us understanding and that you would give us the wisdom to apply this to our hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We come to chapter 14, and as I mentioned, we know that they have been delivered. Pharaoh uh, sent word that the children of Israel could go, and they've gathered things. Remember, they didn't just leave, they, they gathered the gold and the silver, any precious substance that was in Egypt, and the Egyptians gladly gave those things over, and so they've left, and they're on course, and God, as I mentioned here, as we talk about the journey through the wilderness wanderings, they're not going to go straight up to the promised land. That would be 
Basically, the, to travel from Egypt where they were to the promised land would be northeastward. Now, going northeastward means that they would have to go through the lands of Philistia where the Philistines dwelt, and no doubt the children of Israel would encounter a battle there. But it seems evident as we begin chapter 14 that the children of Israel are heading somewhere, but then God is going to change their direction. And the first thing we notice in our text here is the foresight of the Lord. The foresight of the Lord. Notice in verse 1, the Bible says, The Lord speaks unto Moses and He says, Speak unto the children of Israel that they turn and encamp before Pihaharoth, between Migdal and the sea over against Baalzephon, before it shall, uh, before it shall ye encamp by the sea. And so we know that they're treading a course already, but now they are instructed to turn from their current route that they're taking. This move, by the way, would bring them to the Red Sea. And when we get to this place there, understand when we get to the place of that they're stuck, that Pharaoh is behind them, the sea is, uh, uh, is before them, and that the wilderness is beside them, that there's really nowhere for them to go. Uh, but let's remember that when they are brought to that place, they are brought there at the direction of the Lord. Uh, we also know, as we'll see later in the passage, uh, perhaps next week, that, by the way, they were brought there by the Lord. Remember the Lord, how did He lead the children of Israel? He led them by a pillar of a cloud. We talked about that last week, and we know that when the Egyptian army gets to the place, when they're close to the children of Israel, the pillar of cloud is going to come and divide, basically, the Egyptians from the children of Israel. So they had been led there by the Lord. They have been led to a place where their faith is being tested. And I think it's important for us to know and to understand, as we find, by the way, both in the Old and in the New Testament, that God often tests our faith. He tries our faith. As we think about it, He's trying to refine our faith. We go through trials that we can come out of those trials uh, better because of what the Lord did in our lives as a result of that trial. And so this is the place that God calls them to turn. Then we have the specifics. Now the Bible says they're to encamp before Pihiharoth, uh, between Migdal and the sea, which is the Red Sea, over against Belzephon, and they should encamp by the sea. Now, it is not exactly certain where this location was. Actually, I've looked at a, a few maps and I've tried to think about where this exact location was and there was really some disagreement as to where this is. But really, it doesn't matter whether we can find that location on a map. What matters, I believe here, is when many try to pinpoint the exact location, there is one important factor that we have to know about this place and that is found in verse 3. For he says, God speaks to Moses and he says, for Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are entangled in the land, the wilderness, wilderness hath shut them in. So wherever they are, whether you can pinpoint it on a map or not, they are shut in. There is no way of escape. They are entangled by the wilderness. In other words, the, the Egyptian army is going to come from uh, that northwestward direction. Uh, the sea is before them, and really uh, to their side is the wilderness, which to them would make no sense to run the wilderness because it's not like the mountains where you can hide. It's completely flat, and so the chariots would quickly overtake them. So there's no sense of running. And so they're shut in. God has brought His people to the place where there's nowhere to go. Now, why would God bring them there? Why would God bring them to a place where it seems that there is no way for, uh, for them to find deliverance? This was a place where the children of Israel could not escape the army of the Egyptians. Now, they, as I mentioned, they could not face the army of the Egyptians. We know that that is not a consideration that they had. Uh, neither could they outrun the chariots in the open, flat wilderness but neither could they cross the Red Sea and, and say, well, 
Somebody may say, well, don't they know how to swim? Well, I'm, I'm reminding you that this is two million people. And they have cargo, and they have precious metals, and, and they have cattle, and they have many things that they can't just take uh, through the Red Sea. And so this is not an option. And so we see here that this is the, the foresight of the Lord. He, he brings them to this place purposefully. God brings them to a place where they are stuck, where there's no way to go, where there seems to be no potential deliverance. That's where God brought them. In verse 4, Then the Lord says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that he shall follow after them, and I will be uh, honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his host, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Uh, And so here what we find in this passage is really the first reason that God gives us why the Lord brought the children of Israel to this place of no escape. He says, I want the Egyptians to know that I am the Lord. Now I want to pause here and say, don't they already know that? There's been the ten plagues. It was Pharaoh himself who said, uh, let the people go. Uh, They are free to go. Uh, But yet I think that as much as they've learned about the Lord, they still haven't learned enough. And and somebody may say, well, when, when is enough? Well, I think that God, as we've seen, He's tried to bring them to a place of repentance. And they haven't gotten there yet. Uh, The army of the Egyptians was really the only thing we know that had remained untouched. Uh, With everything gone, the Egyptian army was the only remaining source of glory that was left for the Egyptians. And God here will make sure that after He is done with the Egyptians, because of their rebellion, uh, that there is nothing remaining in Egypt uh, whereby man can trust in. Now remember, uh, they could trust in their gods. Uh, Their gods have all been defeated. Uh, They could trust in their natural resources and their lands and their crops, and those have been destroyed. Uh, They could trust in wealth was um, often connected to the amount of cattle that they possessed. It was great cattle. Many of them have been killed and many of them had died, whether it was through the hail or through uh, the boils. Whatever it is, there are uh, many ways through the firstborn, the death of the firstborn. And so we find here that All the things that uh, Egypt could glory in has died. Even the firstborn, the one who was the heir to the throne to be the next God in Egypt has died. Uh, But there is one thing that's left, and that is the Egyptian army. You see, Egypt was feared, not just because of its resources and its vast wealth, but Egypt was feared because of its army and the power of the army. And so God, by the time He's done with Egypt, God makes it such that there is nothing more to trust in in Egypt. Nothing more. He rids the Egyptians of everything that they could potentially trust in. There's nothing left. And so we see here the foresight of the Lord, but then we see uh, the fury of the king. Uh, From verse 5 to verse 9, what God said would happen, happened. Notice verse 5. And it was told the king of Egypt that the people fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and of his servants was turn against the people and they said why have we done this uh, that we that we have let Israel go from serving us and he made ready his chariot and took his people with him and he took 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt and captain over every one of them and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh king of Egypt and he pursued after the children of Israel and the children of Israel went out with an high hand now there are, there are several things here that I, I think they're Uh, mentioned here as they're talking among themselves in Egypt and they're seeing the children of Israel now that they've left, it seems here that they wanted to bring them back into bondage. At the end of verse 5, they say, Why have we done this? That we have let Israel go from what? Serving us. It was really a luxury for Egypt to have slaves, to have a group of people who tirelessly tirelessly worked for them. And so here we find that, why have we done that? We, we need them back in bondage. We need to have rule over them. We want them back as our slave. We also see that they wanted to humiliate the children of Israel. 
It says here that he made ready his chariots and took his people with him, verse 7, and he took 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt and captains over every one of them. Now, I want you to think here. We, we know that thus far with all the plagues, Egypt has been humiliated, has it not? Everything is gone except for the army. And it seems here that this is a reaction out of revenge that they have themselves been humiliated by God and now they want to return the favor and they want to humiliate the people of God by bringing them back into bondage by showing that they are stronger by their army. Let's bring them uh, back in subjection. Let's humiliate the children of Israel. But also they, they wanted to prove their own power. Notice in verse 8, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with a high hand. You see, the children of Israel had won by God. And, and the idea of them going with a high hand, remember they had uh, asked for the gold and the silver and the riches of the Egyptians and they had left with that. They had left on a high note with a high hand with great possessions and with everything much of their cattle had been untouched by the disease and by the hail and all those things. And so uh, now they get to the place where uh, they wanna, they're, they're trying here to prove their own power because they seem to have left with victory but now they, they want to prove their own power. Now, how foolish would it be for Pharaoh to do that after what he's gone through, what he brought the children or what he brought the Egyptians through. You think that no rational human being would dare do that after the ten plagues. Well, such is the human heart that's in rebellion against God. And when the human heart is at, at rebellion against God, God often, and we've talked about this all throughout those chapters, that God uh, puts forth his hand of judgment by applying it to the heart of Pharaoh to even harden his heart even more in his rebellion. Uh, we talked about how God, there's two forms of judgment that God applies. God, uh, often he um, removes his restraining hand and sometimes he applies his hand and both of those are judgments. And here's, there's this judgment on, on Pharaoh. In his pride, they want to bring them back in bondage. They want to humiliate, humiliate the children of Israel and they want to prove their own power. And so we see the foresight of the Lord. We see the fury of the king. But then notice we see the fear of Israel. And so what happens now, we come to uh, verse 10 and the Bible says, And when Pharaoh drew nigh, uh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians marched after them and they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord and they said unto Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Now we clearly see here the fear of the Israel. The Bible says in uh, verse 10 that they were sore afraid. But I want you to notice here kind of the how those events succeeded one another. The first thing that they did in verse 10 is that they lifted up their eyes. Now, the Bible points that out. It would seem to be irrelevant to us to think about that. Notice verse 10. The children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid. And so they looked, and notice here, I believe that God shows us that they lifted up their eyes. Why? Because of what their sight would provoke in their hearts. And I think that we all know that there are things that we see, there are things that uh, we are able to observe in this world that affect our hearts, that they have a deep effect upon us. And here it is clear that as they lift up their eyes, what they saw was devastating to them. While all was well for them, they were free from Egyptian bondage. They had just been delivered from bondage, and now what they saw caused something to change in them. Now, I, I, I want to bring back this question. Who was leading them? Now, I know we say, well, Moses was their leader. Uh, yes, but it was God that brought them to this specific place, was it not? It was God that told Moses, I want you to turn. I want you to go to this place, and I want you to uh, be shut in. Uh, that's where I, I want you. 
but they lift up their eyes. They are, by the way, they are in the place that God wants them to be. And while they are in the place that God wants them to be, they see something else. They see the Egyptian army coming. Now what does their sight provoke them to do? The Bible says they were sore afraid. They feared exceedingly. Uh, they're uh, thinking about their lives. And then the response of that, so notice they lift up their eyes. It provokes a exceeding fear in them. And what that provokes them to do is to cry out. Now, the crying here is not a positive one. We know throughout the Bible, but there's a positive when the, children, that when the children of Israel are crying out to the Lord. But this is not a positive one. This cry was a cry of, as we see in our text, of complaint and despair. It was not a cry of faith and hope and confidence in the Lord. Uh, notice here. Uh, no, it's interesting. Uh, if we look at the questions, uh, verse 11. And they said unto Moses, the people. Now, by the way, their response is the response of fear. That's a fear response um, because of what they saw. The Bible says, mine eye affecteth mine heart. Well, that's true in the positive and the negative. Uh, where you may, a missionary may go to the mission field and he may see the loss and he may think to himself, God has burdened me for the people because of what I've seen. But there's also a negative aspect to that. And that is we may be disturbed by what we see, by the sight, by the place that God has brought us to. And we may be disturbed and the sight may affect our hearts. And here, uh, the heart that's been affected cries out out of complaint and despair. And notice verse 11, And they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Uh, that, what is that? That is sarcasm. That is sarcasm. Do you see that? Uh, because there were no graves in Egypt? Ha, huh, Moses! Uh, did you bring us here because there was no graves in Egypt? There was not enough room for us to be buried in Egypt? Is that, is that why you brought us here? That's sarcasm, isn't it? Uh, we see then, verse 11, Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us, to carry us forth out of Egypt. And so not only do we find here sarcasm, but then they, they blame. They blame Moses. Uh, is that why you brought us here to do? Uh, did you carry us forth here out of Egypt? Uh, why did you deal thus with us? Why did you bring us to this place, Moses? Now remember, God had brought them there. Uh, they were led by what? By the pillar of a cloud. And so they knew it was not just Moses. They certainly should know that it was God that brought them to this place, but yet they, they have to blame somebody for their predicament. So we have sarcasm, we have a blame. Uh, then uh, verse 12, Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? Now, that is pre-plagues, pre-deliverance. Uh, uh, Moses had uh, presented himself as uh, the man that God had raised to bring uh, them out of Egyptian bondage. And early on, uh, they, had, they had rejected Moses. They had rejected his leadership. Uh, they had rejected that type of deliverance. And so now uh, there's not only that sarcasm that exudes out of them, that, that blaming Moses, but now they're completely reversing uh, by saying, we told you to leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. And so, now understand, before they saw the Egyptians, you can imagine the, the, the happiness and the joy of freedom that they enjoyed. We're going to serve God. We're following the Lord by the pillar of a cloud. And, and this is wonderful. And then all of a sudden, because of what they see, there's a complete reversal. Oh, it would to God that we were still serving the Egyptians. That's what they said. But then you read the last part of verse 12. He says, For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Now what I would refer to that, and so we see the sarcasm, we see blame, we see uh, really a, 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 a reversal, but we also see irrationality. It, it's better, it's better for you to serve the Egyptians 
Uh, and, and by the way, the assumption that they're making is this is where they're going to die <laughs> after they saw all that God did. They are assuming that this is the moment they're going to die. And all this is the result of what? Of what their eyes were fixed on. They lifted up their eyes, they saw the Egyptians, and what they saw caused their heart to tremble. And when their heart trembled, they cried out to God and they came to Moses and in sarcasm and blaming him and reversing the fact that they had been led and wanting to go back and being completely irrational in their thinking. And by the way, I just want to make this point that uh, it is very, very quickly. Are we not very quickly turned from a place where we are rejoicing in the Lord to where a place where we become irrational because of what's, what happens in our lives and because what we set our eyes on? But lastly, we come to the faith to follow. So we see in our text here the foresight of the Lord, the fury of the king, the fear of Israel, but then we see the faith to follow. Notice with me verse 13. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not. Now he says that because that's where they were. Don't fear. And then he says, Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today for the Egyptians whom ye have seen today. Ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. That's wonderful counsel from Moses. Uh, Moses, as we'll see in his life, he, he didn't always say the right thing, but he said the right thing here. And I want you to see here how he counsels the children of Israel uh, they've been affected by what they've seen, and now they're, they're in despair. Uh, they're blaming Moses. Uh, they're filled with sarcasm. They, they are assuming here that there is no deliverance for them. They're, they're going to die. And here's what Moses tells them. And, and notice there's an order in that. He says, first of all, fear not. Now, throughout the Bible, there's, there's a pattern where when the Lord says, Fear not, and often he adds this with, with that. He says, fear not, for I am with thee. Now, I, I want to remind you that they had a visible manifestation of the presence of God. Where was that? He said, well, it was in the pillar of a cloud. That represented the presence of God. And so they had that, and it was just not something that was abstract to them. It was something that they could visibly uh, see. And so he tells him here, uh, don't fear. But we're in a place where there is no escape. Don't fear. And then he says, stand still. <laughs> now, let me say, what would be the natural response? Uh, the natural response would be run. Let's escape, find, find a way to escape. Moses, you need to do something. And, and so here, understand here, when uh, you find Moses saying, stand still, he's basically telling them, stop being agitated. Stop being fearful. Stand still. And what we learn here is that any attempt at self-help has to end. Uh, all activities of the flesh have to cease. Uh, the workings of the nature have to be subdued. Stand still. Don't, don't do anything. Uh, that is always, by the way, that is always the right attitude of faith in the presence of trials. What's the right attitude? Stand still. You don't understand, Pastor. I can't stand still. I know, I know, because that's the flesh. The flesh says you can't stand still. You, you have to do something. You have to be agitated. You have to be able to respond and do something to solve the problem of the trial. And God says, just stand still. You don't have to do anything. You see, the heart often grows restless under the anticipation of trials and difficulties. Nature all are the sinful nature always has to do something. And here he says, do the opposite. Stand still. Do nothing. Now, there's a progression here. Fear not. Stand still. 
But then he, and by the way, and here's, here's the reason why, because he says the next one is stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. You see, unbelief, unbelief always shuts God out. Unbelief always shuts God out. And before they can see what God will do, they have to stand still. You see, I believe this is so important because sometimes when we face difficulties, we feel compelled to do something, to respond in a certain way. And sometimes if we're not careful, we feel, well, I need to, to, to do something to resolve the issue. And often what God wants us to do is simply to stand still so that we can have the ability to see something that we are not seeing in that moment. You see, as long as they remained agitated, as long as they remained afraid, they would not be able to see a way out. Before they see the salvation of God, they first have to stand still. They have to stop. Stop all activities of the flesh so you can see something that you're not seeing in the moment. So first he says, fear not. Second, stand still. Third, he says, see the salvation of the Lord. Now, if you mark things in your Bible... I'm in the habit of marking things sometimes in my Bible. Sometimes it's worth it. Sometimes it's not worth it. But I like right beside the word see, you can put the word faith. See the salvation of the Lord. That is faith. Faith. In other words, what is he telling the people? Stand still. And I want you to see something that you're not seeing in the moment. See the salvation of the Lord. See something that you can't see in your agitation, in your fear. You can't see that. But if you learn to stand still, you'll be able to see something that you don't see by faith. Now notice what he says at the remainder of verse 13. He says, See the salvation of the Lord, which He will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. Now I want you to see here what he says in this verse. He says, see the salvation of the Lord. Notice, which he will show you. That's why I say that word see is faith. Why? Because when he tells them to see what they can't see, it's something that God is going to do, not something that God has already done. Notice he says... He will, he will in the future show you, and it's going to be today. But you need to see it before God does it. He says at the end of verse 13, Ye shall see them again no more, forever. And so he says, see something that you do not see right now. By faith, believe God. Now, if you hold your place here, I would like to take you to a, through, to a few references in the New Testament um, maybe that will help us in application. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Notice verse 18. He says, While we look not at the things which are seen. Now let me ask you this. What did the children of Israel see? They saw the Egyptians. They saw the chariots coming. That's what they saw. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. What was unseen? God's deliverance. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I want you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews now. Hebrews chapter 11. A wonderful chapter here on faith. At the beginning of Hebrews 11, uh, verse 1, he says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. <laughs> Interesting verse. Substance is something that is genuine, that is real. Evidence is something that is genuine and that is real. It says the evidence of things not seen. That's what faith is. If you go down with me, um, notice to verse 27. By faith he, that's uh, Moses, forsook Egypt, 
not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as what? Seeing him who is invisible. How can you see that which is invisible? By faith. He tells the, the children of Israel, see the salvation of God. Well, it's not visible, but you can see it by faith. That's what Moses did. He saw him who was invisible. Notice down to verse 29 of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 11. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dried land, which the Egyptians, the same to do, were drowned. And so it is by faith that they passed through dry land. And so understand here that they are to see by faith the salvation of the Lord. And it is not them trusting in what God has to do right now before them and is doing before them. But they have to have faith that God will do something. And they have to believe in that. Fear not. Stand still. Stop the works of the flesh. Stop trying to figure out. And see by faith the salvation of the Lord. Stop looking on what is visible and start looking on what is invisible. And that is the salvation of the Lord, which will come to pass today, he says. I like what um, C.H.M. wrote. He says, uh, Faith, on the contrary, raises the soul above the difficulty, straight to God Himself, and enables one to stand still. We gain nothing by our restless and anxious efforts. We cannot make one hair white or black, nor add one cubit to our stature. What could Israel do at the Red Sea? Could they dry it up? Could they level the host of Egypt? Impossible. They were enclosed within an impenetrable wall of difficulties in view of which nature could but tremble and feel its own impotency. But this was just the time for God to act. When unbelief is driven from the scene, then God can enter. And in order to get a proper view of His actings, we must stand still. Every moment of nature is, as so, as so far as it goes, a positive hindrance to our perception and enjoyment of divine interference on our behalf. Let me say that again. Every moment of nature that does not stand still, as far as it, as it goes, is a positive hindrance to our perception and enjoyment of divine interference on our behalf. See, if we are just on our own by the acts of the flesh and the workings of, the, of our own nature are trying to push through that we cannot stand still and see the salvation of the Lord by faith. We render ourselves blind if we don't stand still. Notice, before he says see the salvation of the Lord, he says stand still. You must stand still before you can see. So all the works of the flesh must stop. He goes on to say, The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. Now, can you imagine the scene? Two million people. Everybody be quiet. Stop complaining, stop murmuring, stop talking about the Egyptians coming. I have to sometimes remind my children, sometimes they all fight and they bicker. And so sometimes I have to say, all right, everybody stop talking, we're going to be quiet now. Not worth it. I just said this week, if one of your siblings' names comes out of your mouth, I don't want to hear it. Everybody be quiet. Silent. Stop complaining. Stop your sarcasm. Stop your unbelief. Stop all your agitation. Hold your peace. One of the best things for us to do in trial is to hold our peace. Be quiet. Stand still. Stop your agitation. Stop your fretting. Why? Because if you're agitated and you fret, you cannot see God. So he says in verse 15, 
And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. Now I like that. Because we see that Moses says, Stand still, see the salvation of the Lord. We just read in uh, Hebrews 11 that by faith they passed through the Red Sea. And we ask ourselves, oh, wait a minute, I didn't see any faith in here. Did you? I, I just saw complaining. I-, I didn't see any faith. But notice the command of God. God says, tell the children of Israel to go forward. And then verse 16, But live thou up thy rod, and stretch out thine hand over the sea. I know sometimes we have the cartoon, and the commentators chime in there, and they'll say, well, uh, the children of Israel moved as soon as Moses put uh, the rod in the water, or stretched it above the water, and then uh, the sea opened. No, I don't believe that's how, what, how it happened. Because of what Hebrews 11.29 says, By faith they passed through the Red Sea. What did God command them? He says, Go forward. I believe they began to march forward towards the Red Sea. And then Moses put his rod, and then the waters opened. Stand still, see the salvation of the Lord. Don't do anything, be quiet, stop fretting, stop being anxious. Stop all the natural inclinations and see the salvation of God by faith. See it. And by the way, when you see it by faith, then move forward. But only when you see it. Move forward. You see, it really renders it impossible for them if they don't believe that the sea is going to open for them to move forward. You see, God saying, go forward, does not contradict stand still. The truth, the truth is that they were not ready to go forward until they stood still. And until they saw the salvation of the Lord. And by faith, believe in what they could not see. You see, faith, and here's what we learn, faith is always based on divine promises. All obedience to God's commands must always spring from faith in God's divine promises. Now what was the promises? Well, notice verse, verse back to verse 13. He will show you today For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more. Now it's interesting. We don't really know how it's going to happen. We don't. In other words, faith was not in, all right, so this is what God's going to do. God's going to tell Moses to stretch forth his rod. The sea's going to open. You're going to walk. When you get to the other side, then the Egyptians are going to pursue you. And then the, the water's going to come over them. And that's how it's going to happen. That's not what he says. He just says, God's going to show you His salvation today. You don't know how it's going to happen. You don't have all the the details, but God will deliver you. And furthermore, I want you to know this other fact that you need to have confidence in. Is that the Egyptians that you see today, you will never, ever see them again. Now they don't know that they're going to drown. They just are to believe that if they see the salvation of the Lord, it means two things. It means salvation and the defeat of the enemy. Salvation and the defeat of the enemy. That's all they know. They don't know the details of how it's going to happen. And by the way, that's what faith is. Understand that faith is not us or God telling us all the details and us believing every single detail that we need to hear from God about how everything is going to happen in our lives. It's us having confidence in those promises that God does make. And there are two basic promises. You will be delivered. The enemy will be defeated. You don't need to know how that's going to happen. You just need to have faith and see it. I believe that the children of Israel saw it. And according to the command of God, that God told Moses to tell the children of Israel, when He says, go forward, and after that, He says, but... Lift thou up thy rod and stretch out thine hand over the sea. And so here is the scene, if I can try to picture it. Moses says, all right, everybody. Here's the sea. Go forward. And as they begin to march, God says, stretch forth thy rod. As they're already obeying by faith, 
moving forward, he stretches forth his rod, and as they're obeying the Lord, he opens the sea. I believe that's what happened. Don't fear. Stand still. See the salvation of the Lord. Pause. Stop the agitation of the flesh. Stop all of your anxiousness and your fear and see something you're not seeing in that moment. And when you stop and see that by faith, trust that God will take care of you. You see, then you can move forward. You see, I think the trouble in our lives is we try to move forward before we learn to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. We try to figure out our lives without trusting God. And so although we are not facing what the children of Israel faced in that moment, I believe those uh, same truths and principles apply, apply to, to our lives today. He says in verse 16, But lift thou up thy rod, and stretch out thine hand over the sea, and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And we'll go and look at that second part uh, next week. You say, well, so pastor, what... what uh, <clears throat> What counsel would you give me if I'm going through a trial? I would tell you two things. Stand still and go forward. In other words, I think that sometimes we make a mistake where we might just say, just go forward, just press through it. You're going to be all right. Just press through it. Go forward. You'll make it. You'll see something on the other side. No, no, no. I think there is much wisdom to say, all right, let's not fret. Let's just pause and stand still. Stop the agitation of the flesh. And let's remind ourselves of the promises of God. And let's trust God and see something that we're not seeing in our agitation. And when we are in that state of heart and mind, only then can we move forward by faith. And it is only then that I believe that God does wonderful things on our behalf. The Bible says that without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Could it be that God just brings us through difficulties so that He could challenge our faith and mature us, increase our faith? They've already seen plenty. But isn't it interesting how they've already, in that moment of what they see, they've already given up? And just in that moment, understand, when you're about to ready to give up, you know sometimes the things that God has done for you in the past. But sometimes those things are not enough to carry you through in the moment of trial. So what you have to do in the moment of trial, what you've seen in the past is not enough. What you see in the moment is you have to stop. Stop. And by faith, after you stand still, move forward. And so may the Lord help us to, to do that in our lives. It's a hard, it's a hard, difficult thing to do. But I believe it is necessary for us to do.